0: Data Skeptic Bonus Feed, where we release extended content on data science, statistics, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. To kick off, can you guys introduce yourselves? Excellent. So my
1: name is Paige Bailey. I'm a cloud developer advocate at Microsoft, specialized in machine learning and AI. Um, And before coming to Microsoft, I spent about four and a half years as a data scientist in the energy industry.
2: My name is Seth Juarez. I'm also a cloud developer advocate in AI ML. My particular uh, strength is uh, AI algorithms, machine learning algorithms. I love making them. I love talking about them and I love thinking about them. I also love the whole process of building models. I'm not as experienced as Paige, who's a real data scientist. I'm more from the theoretical side. And so that's what my strength is.
0: Very cool. So broadly speaking, what does AI mean to Microsoft?
1: So Microsoft has uh, come to the realization that artificial intelligence should probably be embedded into every application. Mm-hmm. And and what does that mean in reality? That means that predictive modeling, um, gaining insights from data that's accumulated as you use an app, um, can be... M- you uh make your lives easier. Make it make it simpler to to go through a process and to to give automatic recommendations.
2: Absolutely. And sometimes the, the term AI and machine learning or artificial intelligence, and machine learning, get confused. Mm-hmm. To me, artificial intelligence is really anything that makes a machine look or act in a way that looks smart. It turns out the machine learning happens to be one of the best techniques to do that. Mm-hmm. But I mean, you could make a fairly complex regular expression. That could count as artificial intelligence. I mean, Absol- what do you think, Paige?
1: Absolutely. So AI, um, in its simplest form, could just be like y equals mx plus b. Mm-hmm. It could be, yeah. you know, just a, a simple function, a simple function mm-hmm. um, that takes an input and gives you an output that's predictive.
2: For example, like when you're playing chess, mm-hmm. those are not using machine learning algorithms, but they are. They do feel like AI. Like you're using A star or minimax. Those are mm-hmm. algorithms for like adversarial type games. Mm-hmm. The stuff we saw. Uh, with, uh, for example, women Kasparov paid play Deep Blue. People think of that as artificial intelligence, but right. it's not machine learning. Machine learning is a different subset of artificial intelligence.
1: Yeah. And so Microsoft has recently come out with a number of tools for AI. So we have the AI tools for Visual Studio, which help you spin up Spark clusters and manage them, monitor the predictive capacity of your model over time, um, give you some sort of insight into how often you should do a data refresh of your model. We also have deep learning virtual machines, data science virtual machines, geospatial data science virtual machines, Um, things like MML Spark that help you interact with Apache Spark um, in a more straightforward way, and then also CNTK, which is a deep learning framework similar to Google's TensorFlow. So really a lot of options for data scientists that weren't around, you know, one or two years ago.
2: Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Did that answer your question?
0: Definitely, yeah. So I was impressed with some of the stuff we saw in the demo um, or during the keynote around uh, Visual Studios and the new drop-down AI functionality. Can you talk about some of the highlights of what's available there?
2: Absolutely. So Visual Studio tools for AI is helping empower people that like to build build machine learning models, do them in a way that's very productive. Here's let me give you an example. Beforehand, what I used to have to do when I would build these models is I would have to make them, and then I would have to leave them there for several hours, and then I would mm-hmm. return and be like, oh man, I messed up some code, I have to restart everything over again. So now with, with Visual Studio Tools for AI, you're able to run these, for example, Python uh, machine learning models, train them in the context of like deep learning VMs that have tons of GPUs, tons of CPUs, and tons of memory. And then now you can also use, for example, something called Azure Batch AI, train these models on elastic and scalable GPUs, or you can even collaborate with other people using Azure Machine Learning. And those nodes are all in there inside of Visual Studio Tools for AI. They're designed to help any data scientist be productive with creating models. And if you're a data science enthusiast and might, would like to get a, a, a grapple of what machine learning is and how you can do it, you can also go to the drop-down box and install some really good examples. Like the example that we did at Connect was the hand-digit recognition one. We have one like that already in both TensorFlow flavors flavors. And CNDK are coming up toolkit flavors.
1: Absolutely. And then there's also AISchool.microsoft.com, which was just recently announced Mm -hmm. yesterday, um, where if you'd like to get AI developer certified from Microsoft, or if you'd just like to learn more about any of the deep learning frameworks we just mentioned, um, you can go there and get a pretty good insight.
2: Absolutely. I mean we're we're pretty excited about AI. We feel like moving forward AI is a big push in our company, our CEO said so himself, and we're making strategic investments to help developers and data scientists be productive together. Kind of like we had this weird divide between the IT folks and then the developer folks, mm-hmm. and now you've seen that merge happening with the DevOps space. Yeah. That we've got to come up with a term with like the Ops AI space or <laughs> Ops I, I don't know, something that merges those two fields because the data science process of generating models and productionalizing them or operationalizing those models, which is what's called an, an in, uh, data science, like developers, I feel like we're out of the loop when it comes to how that process actually happens. Mm-hmm. And one of the major goals of that, of, of one of the keynotes at Connect was to actually have Microsoft show, look, these are the outputs. And then you use those as inputs to do actual uh, intelligence.
0: Yeah. Right. So I'm used to, in, in Visual Studios, right clicking and saying debug as or whatever the case may be. From that perspective, the usability front. How do I connect to those VMs you were describing?
2: That's awesome. So what you would do is you would literally create you. And and when you're doing machine learning training, and correct me if I'm wrong, because you have more experience, page like the code isn't very long. Like you're if you're getting hit in 300 lines of code, it feels like it's a little too much.
1: Absolutely, you can generate a model that uh, so a predictive model that also gives you some insight into the performance of the model um, and does a little bit of data cleaning in R with like 10 lines of code. Right, Mm -hmm. and with Python,
2: it's a little bit more, but not much.
1: Absolutely. And and that's because there are a number of libraries available. So things like Scikit-learn, um, things like Carrot, if you're coming from the R space, that make that process super easy. You're leveraging the great work of a number of people over a number of decades for those models. So
2: you write these lines of code, which aren't very many, but now when you need to run them on like terabytes and tons of data... You really can't do that on your local machine. So mm-hmm. what you can do on the project is you right-click, submit the job to either a deep learning VM, either to Elastic Compute using uh, AI Batch Learning, uh, the Batch AI Batch Learning service. What's it called? AI Batch. Yeah. I keep yeah. the name escapes me right now. And then, mm-hmm. or you could submit it to Azure Machine Learning uh, uh, context there. And then what it does is it takes your code and it runs it up on the cloud with machines that can handle yeah. that kind of thing,
1: or a Spark cluster, or or you know, um, so. HD Insight, if you're using Microsoft products, or Databricks, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. if you would prefer to use that. So that's another announcement
2: there. A- absolutely. Yesterday. So imagine and now writing this code locally and testing it on some local stream and then pushing it up to the cloud and doing the predictive modeling there. And so, mm-hmm. again, the thing about machine learning is there's a two-step process for the actual artifacts that you're building. There's obviously a longer process for the data science process. But you actually – there's a part where you train the model and it produces this – Artifact. Mm-hmm. That's a model, and then there's this at prediction time. Very fast. You give it the data, and it says, "I think it's this." And so, those two steps are very different. The part about building it—that's where AI tools for Visual Studio actually really is very powerful and helps a lot.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Once you've got your artifact, whether it's like uh, I forget the like MDL files mm-hmm. in R, or you pickle something in Python. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's kind of challenging for a lot of people what the next step is. Can you tell me about some of the options I have for taking that artifact and really operationalizing it?
1: Right, so there are a number of options you have as a data scientist, right? It could be that your model ends up feeding a mobile application that gives somebody a recommendation Mm -hmm. um, based on a given number of inputs. It could be that you're generating um, just sort of a static HTML file each night that gets sent to a URL um, where some uh, some executive can click on it and be like, oh, well, it looks like my clusters are, are similar to... To this today. Um, or it could be that, you know, it's just a one-time analysis um, where, you know, you do it once a year and it doesn't really make sense to operationalize it in an application. So I, I really love cognitive services in that um, you kind of generate this REST API, uh, REST API endpoint um, where an application can connect if you want to, or if somebody just wants to call it with a line of code. Um, but it, it's not necessary that that has to be done, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So.
2: And then to follow along, for example, you, you mentioned very aptly that it, there's this model file, what do I do with it? With uh, Azure Machine Learning Model Management, you can actually create containers that Mm -hmm. can then be run in docker as as services that you can actually call and then also and and i don't know if people know about this too much there is an actual exchange format that is being worked on called onyx Mm -hmm. Mm o-n-n-x that allows machine learning models to have an equal representation across all models across all frameworks and once you have this exchange format now you have a way, a toolable way of actually creating the code because since this format is standard, then you can create libraries that consume onyx models that can be generated from any framework at any time.
1: Yeah, and so Amazon, Facebook, and Microsoft have joined into this Onyx partnership, um, and we're already having support for Cafe2, um, for CNTK, for Torch, for a number of other frameworks. Um, Google has not joined the partnership yet, um, so there's not TensorFlow support, but we do think that that will be there in the future.
2: But uh, what's cool about it is once you have this exchange format Mm -hmm. for this particular type of thing, Notice that the amount of tools that you can build, and and just like imagine if you're a C sharp developer having a, a NuGet package or a jar file, if you're a Java developer, mm-hmm. or you just pip install something, if you're a Python developer, and you're u- you're doing something like Django, for example. Now that you have this exchange format, you can just use it as a resource. Use the gem, for example, mm-hmm. if you're in Ruby, and then just call it like you would anything
0: else. Yeah. Paige, you'd mentioned um, tools for data refresh. Is that the same thing as like monitoring for model drift?
1: Yes. So um, over time, obviously, your model is probably going to lose its predictive capacity. Mm -hmm. So your accuracy is going to go down, your precision or your recall might go down. And in that case, you would need to build up a cadence um, with business requirements on how often your model should be refreshed with new data. So it might be that you would need to retweak your algorithm, retweak some of the hyperparameters, or, It could just be that, you know, you just... Need to feed more data into a deep learning thing, and then it spits a model. So um, the predictive, um, the predictive monitoring that Seth was mentioning in Azure Machine Learning Workbench um, is what would give you that insight into how often your model should be refreshed. And
2: Azure Machine Learning, what, what's cool about it with with the model management and experimentation service is you can actually see your models how they perform over, over time, time, right? Which yeah. is which is cool. The other benefit, and maybe somewhat orthogonal, but equally important, is when you're actually working on cleaning your data for the models, Azure Machine Learning Workbench has a very powerful way of doing that so that you can actually generate something Mm code-like that will Change your data into a shape that your models will understand?
1: Absolutely. There was a project run by Microsoft Research called Pros, um, codenamed Project Pendleton, that introduces machine learning into the data cleaning process. So, as you go through this GUI base where you can um, change, change values based on what your classifier should be or reformat JSON, however you would want, all of those processes are saved as steps in a prep file that can then either be run programmatically on it, like a Spark cluster or locally or even on an IoT edge device. So
2: and we got so, you covered. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it feels like.
0: Yeah. There's a lot of tools. Uh, obviously, um, Azure Databricks, a new one, um, ML Studio, um, which I think is, is different from the yeah, machine that, learning studio yeah, you were mentioning. Yeah,
1: uh, it's it's drag and drop machine learning. Right. So so ML Studio has been around for a while. Azure Machine Learning Workbench is more of a programmatic interface for data scientists as opposed to the the drag and
0: drop sure. environment. Yeah. So how do I choose what's right for me? Well, it depends on what you feel like doing,
2: right? Uh-huh. Uh, in, in, in the case of, uh, for example, if it's something new you want to do, it might be the drag-and-drop thing that might work for you because you can actually see the process of everything that's happening. If you're somebody that wants to use a deep learning framework like, for example, TensorFlow and you're happy using that, then you could you could think about using Visual Studio tools for AI and bringing in some example code and running it locally, seeing if it works, and then running it on a deep learning VM later when you need to scale it. Or you could use Azure Machine Learning workbench you know just to clean your data and so we have a bunch of tools to do a bunch of different things the the question the answer to your question which one should i use was well which what do you want to do right and Mm -hmm. uh we have prescriptions for all of these kinds of things but we definitely don't want to tie you up for example and we didn't even mention this we also have visual studio code tools for ai so let's just say you want to use visual studio code Great, use that. We we are really, when we talk about any developer, any language, right, we really mean it. We really want you to be able to be productive in any environment. And we are a tools company. We're also a cloud company. And so we're going to provide the best tools and hopefully the best cloud to enable these kinds of workloads.
0: Yeah. So, when it comes to AI, the tools we've talked about, um, at the same time, we have things like cognitive, surf, uh, cognitive services, where essentially the tool is wholly formed. Mm-hmm. 10 years out, do you see AI being, um, or a practitioner of AI being someone who picks the services that are well suited to their need, or are they using tools to build something?
1: So I think that that would be dependent on the person's problem. I would love to see a world that's run on just like cognitive services stitched together based to fit a need. Um, but there are going to be some problems that are very highly specialized to a specific environment. And in that case, you would need a data scientist to build the predictive model. I would love to see those predictive models then deployed as cognitive services, though, so more customized things um, that are uh, that are very um, – sort of industry-specific, that have been created by a data scientist but are as simple to use as a call-to-arrest API.
2: And as we begin to democratize AI, and I think this is not 10 years out. I think we're years out from yep. this. As we begin to democratize AI and we start to have exchange formats, imagine a scenario where now vendors can create models that they can sell. Right, that they can you can sell a subscription to this model. And if you buy our subscription, great. If you want to buy a single license, you're only gonna get the model that's been trained on the data we have up to this point. But if you want a subscription, we train this model every day. It's Mm -hmm. a well behaved well behaved model. And then if there's any problems, just let us know. We will help you with statistical anomalies. But think of think of think of these models as like libraries that you would buy eventually mm-hmm. and and with these exchange formats that we we have and with the with the power that AI is getting and with these mm-hmm. notions of things like transfer learning i mm-hmm. see a world where where before we would be happy buying like libraries to generate pdfs we would be very happy buying models that do something that we want
1: absolutely and the people who own the majority of the data the they're going to be the kings of building the deep learning models because you know your deep learning model is only as good as the data it's trained on.
2: Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And then you take these, these models that have been built, you lop off a little bit of the top and use the bottom of the neural network, deep learning network, in order to learn new things and put logistic mm-hmm. regression on top of it. And yeah. you can do that kind of stuff today where you're leveraging the power of some pre-learned models and creating more specific models. And I, can, I imagine a, a marketplace of powerful models that anyone can use at any time.
0: Mm-hmm. So Jeffrey Hinton famously said uh, we should stop training radiologists because it takes about five years to train one, and in five years the models will be better than humans are. And we are already seeing um, detection of a heart arrhythmia. The machines do better than people today. Yet I think, and disagree with you, you think I'm wrong, but we're a little ways out from passing the Turing test. So what are the you know major breakthroughs we're going to see on that path what what are the industries and areas of uh- life and finance and whatnot that are going to be affected most by AI in the near term.
2: So I saw a Ted talk and this is going to be an interesting position. I don't know if I agree with it wholly, but it's something that I heard and it's something that I want to put out there to hear what people think. The first industrial revolution commoditized the workforce in the sense that we made machines that helped us sort of like we coal and power allowed us to make machines that commoditize workforce before, during the years of the pyramids, you would have to have a lot of people to do anything Monumental. And I say that with the pun intended because the pyramids are indeed monumental. I think with with the rise of AI, in particular, there's going to be a commoditization of cheap intelligence where we're going to see easy things like translation. Right or easy things like detecting things in pictures, or for example, detecting an anomaly in a chip that's going by in a, on a on a work belt, or uh, well, you know, like in a factory. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, that kind of commoditization of cheap intelligence is what this kind of industrial revolution is going to is going to help facilitate, right? And so as we see these models become smarter, I honestly don't think they're ever going to become sentient. I think the biggest thing we have to worry about is bias and data but beyond that i think that the commoditization of cheap intelligence is what's going to drive a sort of second industrial revolution and that's what the dude in the ted talk said mm-hmm. okay and now like to me that was very interesting to think about and it and it made a lot of sense now to the extent that these machines are going to take over the job of radiologist i don't know if that's the case because there is something that literally is uncomputational about human thinking uh, and so, I think that we are still going to need humans. But I'm going to think I, I'm I'm I think that just like. We didn't need horseshoe makers anymore, except in niche environments today, there's going to be certain fields where we're not going to need that kind of intelligence worker anymore.
1: Absolutely. And even the best models, they're only predictive up to a point, right? So you might have 95% accuracy, and then you need to have somebody to kind of double check those edge cases. So it might be that somebody was misdiagnosed and you would want to have a second opinion to be a human. Um, I also think that we're a little bit far from having, you know, computers generate a film that would speak to a person, mm-hmm. or or a, or a symphony that would speak to a person, right? Like those those sort of more emotional, um, emotional artistic tasks are a little bit further out.
2: Absolutely. So to, to answer your question, what are some of the tasks that are going to be commoditized? Well, think of things that a two year old can do, mm-hmm. like. Is there something wrong with this, little Jimmy? Yes, there is, you know, or can you tell me what this says? Yes, I can, you know, and so that that is gonna obviously there's gonna be problems because there's certain jobs that are gonna need to be migrated to other specialities, but I think overall, just like. And you can go and research. There was I don't know where this article was. It was The Atlantic or a magazine like that that showed every decade, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, the industrialization or or the computerization of this is going to remove X number of jobs and we're all doomed. We're seeing this same argument today with artificial intelligence that was put forth years ago Mm -hmm. when the first computer came out. Like these arguments of like we're losing jobs and things are going to be bad. You've, we've seen these before did we lose yeah. jobs absolutely but did we re-specialize as humanity and Create yes. more jobs. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's almost like it's almost like we're climbing this mountain and we're right now we're nailing this rung in into humanity of ai and we're all going to step up because of it right just like when the car came out just like when the printing press came out all of these things were rungs to humanity that enabled us to go into this next level of existence i feel like ai happens to be one of those things and there is a lot of shock and awe and fear about this, FUD, fear, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Mm-hmm. But I feel like just like the horseshoe maker was upset that Ford was making a car, like eventually that horseshoe maker re-specialized, <laughs> right? Yeah. And decided to to do horseshoe making at weddings or something. I don't know. Uh, but I feel like like even though there is going to be a disruption, we have had these disruptions many times before. And I don't think it's near as fatalistic as some portray it to be. That's my opinion. What do you think?
1: I absolutely agree. I think that there are going to be more jobs created by AI and that it will just free up our cognitive load so we can concentrate on more interesting tasks.
0: Yeah. So, says when you said there's something uncomputable about intelligence did you mean that very technically? Like, are we rejecting the extended Church-Turing thesis? Uh,
2: I think. I think, for example, um, here, let me give you just a mechanical answer. Mm-hmm. There is an inherent randomness to human decisions mm-hmm. in the face of no information that is uncomputable right? For example, generating a real random number is nigh near impossible. In fact, we have these things called pseudo random number generators. Mm-hmm. The best one is the Marcin twister, if I remember yeah. right. And these things are literally just generating sequences of numbers that simulate a uniform distribution, right? If you were to seed, like if you're a programmer, and you were to seed your random number generator with the same number, it would produce the same sequence every time. And so what I'm trying to say is that just the notion of randomness is very hard for a computer to do. But for a human, super easy to do. And so just that single example, for me, shows that computability with humanity in our brains is capable of much more than a computer can do under current computational models, Mm -hmm. right? When we move to quantum computational models, there is this notion of randomness that you may be able to approximate, but what you can do with that is unclear.
1: And we also don't have a compiler yet for quantum computers. Right. And and we also don't really have... We have a language for it, but yes. right, we don't yeah. have the hardware or a compiler. Although so, IBM
2: did come out with a five-qubit machine recently. Did you see that?
1: I did not see that. Yeah, That's interesting. It's an interesting. actual
2: five-qubit machine, which is pretty powerful.
0: Mm-hmm. So what's Microsoft's interest in uh, quantum?
2: Well, you saw uh, Satya talked about at Ignite. He talked about quantum computing. We're very interested in quantum. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would think of... Uh, and they told me this. Uh, Krista Svori, uh, who was... One of the researchers on the project told me during one of our interviews that uh, quant- think of a quantum computer as you would think of a GPU, right? Notice that you offload certain kinds of, of sure. computational workloads to a GPU because they're better at it. Uh, for example, parallel computation, linear algebra, they're super good at it. For a GPU. Graphics for a GPU. Yeah. Uh, there's other workloads that are going to be really good to put on a quantum computer, but you would still have your regular computer, create the data, ship it over. It mm-hmm. would do its thing and then respond back. And so examples of that, uh, for example, in material science, remember when you were trying to balance equations on both sides and it was really hard because you had to think of these, all these like numerical combinations of like, okay, there's two sodiums here and then the, how many sodium. Now when you expand that out into like, very complex uh, uh, combinations of substances. It becomes uh, exponential to search through, right? And so now, with quantum computers, because of uh, because of superposition and entanglement, for every qubit you get, you get two to the n ways to explore things. And so now, we'll be able to do much, thing, uh, much better things with uh, with new materials, right? We'll be able to explore those. We'll be able to solve those chemical equations. Much faster, but again, you would just offload it there, and you would do it. And so, why are we interested in it? Because imagine being able to build a new super material, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? It's very, very powerful. There's a number of other areas where, uh, for example, cryptography. We get, yeah, cryptography. Uh, yeah. Uh, like for example, there's a problem with our current crypt- cryptographic systems. They're they're broken by compu by uh, quantum computational models. And so there's now quantum mm-hmm. computing uh, uh, computational models that are stronger than regular cryptographic. Mm -hmm. We've also seen polynomial improvement in deep learning uh, in the speed of deep learning algorithms in quantum computing as Mm -hmm. well. And so why are we interested? Well, it's because it's it's the next way of computing, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of measuring on and off, we have a linear combination of that at the same time combined with a bunch of other qubits. It's a pretty powerful space that we're excited to explore and we feel that we're we're the best company to do it. You're not going to have a quantum computer in your house, but hopefully eventually you'll be able to rent one in our cloud.
0: Yep. Makes sense. Well, I know we're limited on time. To wind up, tell me about AISchool.Microsoft.com.
2: Awesome. Uh, well, that's something that we're putting together to help people get up to speed from AI school. Now, it's just been released. I've saw I've saw early prototypes. It's going to have really nice custom paths. You're going to be able to ask it stuff and it's going to get smarter over time. So that as you ask it questions, it's going to be able to say, you should watch this. And so we're hoping that it's going to be something that has some AI infused into it, it, it that it provides a new experience. And we're going to use data to actually help us make it a little bit smarter, but you should go to it right now.
1: Absolutely. We also have AI developer certification offered through Microsoft and also learn So a number of different offerings all geared to helping you understand data engineering, data science, machine learning, predictive analytics, uh, deep learning, how they all kind of work together.
0: Very cool. Yeah, I
2: mean, we threw a lot of information at you, (laughs) but uh, we want you to know as cloud developer advocates, we're very excited to help everyone understand how to use these tools, these frameworks for both AI and hopefully in the future for quantum. Uh, But one of the other things we do, and it's a very important part of our job, is we take the feedback of our users and we go to the product teams independently and we say, hey, look, this is the feedback we're getting. So please do not hesitate to reach out to us.
1: Absolutely. We're on Twitter, um, Seth Juarez, uh-huh. and Dynamic webpage with a P-A-I-G-E. So, yeah.
0: Please
2: a- reach out.
1: Absolutely.
0: All right, great. Thanks for coming in, guys.
1: Data Skeptic is a listener-supported program. To support the show, visit dataskeptic.com and click on the membership tab.